Welcome to Into Theology. Ian, Claire and I are still working through the book of Proverbs, just chapters one through nine, more of a sort of a relaxing thing before we start, I believe, next week on a new series on the great reformed Protestant <laughs> thinker Thomas Aquinas. And uh, we'll have, I think, hopefully by the time, this time next week, we'll have an article out explaining why we chose him and a little reading plan for you as you follow along. Um, but as we get going in, once you read the first 11 verses of Proverbs 8, we're going to, I think, kind of focus on chapters 7 through 9 today. We'll see. Sounds good. Let's do it. Yeah, wisdom's call from uh, from the beginning, just the first 11 verses from, uh, from Proverbs chapter 8. So, uh, does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the porters, portals, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteousness. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. Wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with it. Yeah, that reminds me a lot as you're reading of Job 28, which is like this chapter in the middle of Job where if I remember right, it's about like delving deep into the earth to basically pull out wisdom. Yeah, it's like like the the hinge chapter for the whole book really it's 28 yeah, I think, or like you're finding out why all this is really kind of happening yeah in my view that's the kind of the 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 thing that unlocks the meaning of job is that it's actually wisdom yeah I, probably, you're right story. probably the same here with proverbs 8 especially and i'm sure we'll probably talk about this but like especially if you're making a christological connection with with, with lady wisdom here i mean there's a lot obviously going on with who the, these two women are from seven and eight and then you know, right is is wisdom yeah, that's calling here. Is that is that uh, is that Christ? Is this kind of a Christophany? Is it typological of Christ? Is it just like setting up a paradigm for the incarnation? Um, I don't know, what do you think of that? Actually, I don't, might as well ask. I would <laughs> say, far be it from me to read the text any other way than the literal intent <laughs> and what? to engage in any sort of allegorical nonsense. What you don't like? The Reformation happened for a reason, and no reformers <laughs> would Sola ever scriptura. read the Bible. Yeah. Uh, no, my, my answer is really interesting. So I, I've been preaching through Kings recently. And so as we talked about this a little bit before the call. So I'm not informing you, but just those who are listening. Um, you and are. I, it strikes me that uh, Solomon, who wrote Proverbs 1 through 9, also is the one who asked for divine wisdom in 1 Kings 3. And that wisdom matches exactly what you see in Proverbs. It's wisdom to know good from evil. It's wisdom to know animals and plants. Solomon in chapter six says, "Look at the ant to be wise." Yeah. Seven, it's I can't like remember Aesop's it fable. Yeah, it's it's he's mastered nature, all the levels below humanity, which are plants and animals, and then lastly, the ability to uh, do poetry, uh, namely proverbs. Is uh, I think he, I think he did a thousand and five proverbs. King says I can't remember. Oh yeah, it was a lot. Yeah, it's a lot, and so these are just of course be some of them. So I think there you have that, but then you also have this whole yeah wisdom calling to you. And to me, like I, I kind of simplify it and say, look, there's only one wisdom, and that's divine wisdom. And everything on earth that's wise is, is more or less a reflection of divine wisdom and creation. And so, Paul, like New Testament, the New Testament tells us that really Christ is the embodiment yeah, of first, that. First, yeah, First uh, Corinthians one thirty, Christ is our wisdom. And then John, 
uses a different word. He calls Christ the Logos that created everything, but it's the same sort of idea. And in fact, the language in John 1 is very similar to the language in Proverbs 8, which which you read, um, which is essentially that in Proverbs 8, wisdom co-creates with God before the beginning. And so where I don't... Do you, where, do you, where do you see that? Is there like... Uh, yeah, so verses... Um, Verses 22 and following, uh, it says that he, um, at the beginning of his work, it's verse 27, for example, when he established the heavens, I was there when oh, he drew yeah. a circle in the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the limit to the sea, its limit. So the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight. So he's wisdom is the as the workman, the the means by which the Father creates. So through wisdom he creates. And in John one, nothing comes into being except through right. logos, which is this. It's the same analogy there. It's just a different word to that John preferred. But the right, idea is, that I mean, the word logos is you know you can translate it as like reason or something, you know, something of the intellect, um, logic, you know, that sort of thing. So it makes total sense. Yeah, in my mind, what the Old Testament calls wisdom is, is kind of what John's getting at with the idea of, of logos. Um, yeah, or what Thomas would say, o sapientia, you know. Yeah, exactly. But it's this, this basic idea that we we sort of um, act through wisdom. Now, I, I wouldn't necessarily go too far and like some people say, well, it's, is it exactly Christ? I just think it's true that God creates through wisdom. It's true that God gives wisdom. And there's only one wisdom in the universe, and that's Christ. Right. So to me... Solomon, when he when he sacrifices a Gibeon and asks God for wisdom, in a, God grants it by giving him Christ. Yeah, that's amazing. That's so awesome. There's no other alternative. I mean, it is wisdom. I, I mean, it is wisdom, but yeah. there's no other wisdom but Christ or God. So, like, yeah. what did he receive? Well, he received some sort of gift of wisdom. Now, James says the exact same thing. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask with faith without wavering, James 1. And then it contrasts the two wisdoms from above and below in James 3. There's no other wisdom but Christ. Do you see, do you see James as a kind of the, the New Testament version of wisdom literature? I think James 1 is actually, uh, I, I can't prove this, but it's so parallel to 1 Kings 3. I think by narrative, 1 Kings 3 does by statement what James 1 does. Because huh. you got to think about Solomon asks without wavering and in faith for wisdom. And there's no doubting. And James 1, I think 5 says that's the only way to ask. And then you'll be rewarded. But if you don't ask that way, you'll be a, a double-souled person and 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 you'll be unstable. And so yeah. what Solomon asks for and the kinds of things like that are talked about in James and in Kings, they're very similar. So I think James is a good Bible reader. I don't know if he's like exactly doing exegesis, but it's his intellectual world, at least. That's interesting. I mean, maybe that's a book we should do after we finish the Summa is jump into James. And like that means we've kind of... 100%. Ecclesiastes, we've done Job, we're doing Proverbs, and then to do James later, it'd be really cool, you know? Well, James is like, there's two things that's really interesting about James. One is that although there's no, I don't think there's an explicit um, New Testament citation that I can remember, and yet I would almost argue every verse you can trace back to Jesus's Logia, words, like Matthew in particular. And this would make sense if that James is the brother of Jesus, which many people think is, is true. I think uh, Bachman and so on. Then it would make sense that like every verse that he says in there is basically like a Jesus uh, uh, exposition or yeah. it's like reworded, but like you can actually go through the gospel records and James and you're like, oh, 
in fact, though there's no citations, it might be the most bibline book possible. But then huh. secondly, what's interesting to me is that it is essentially wisdom literature. That's interesting, the previous point there, because like, you know, Luther, like we, we misunderstand Luther's um, critique of James, right? Like we think that, oh, it's the James 2 stuff, faith that works is dead, which was actually not really the issue for Luther. The issue with, with, with James for him was that there was real no gospel in it. Like there's no, you know, kind of like Christ-like teaching. It's, it's all, it seems like the whole thing's almost law. Which, that, which then what you're saying then would address that issue for him if, if it's basically an exposition of Christ's own teaching then. And, uh, and that, that also fits, right? Because, I mean, you'd know this better than I would, but like Proverbs as wisdom literature is, is basically building off of the Torah, right? Like uh, of the law. And so if Moses is a lawgiver and then this kind of wisdom literature is an exposition of that within the covenant community, then the same would be the case for James, right? So Jesus is the, the greater Moses, and then James is doing exactly the same sort of thing that uh, that, that, that Proverbs is doing with the law. Well, James even talks about the royal law, which you know it would take to be essentially, it's there's one law, but in this case, it's Jesus's fulfillment of the Mosaic law. Um, no, I, yeah, I think that'd be awesome. Now, uh, just a couple notes in Proverbs that I wanted to bounce off before we run out of time. Is yep. that I, I think it's really fascinating that in chapter seven to nine, you basically have two women and then many yeah. more women later. Because he hates have, women, right? Yeah, the harlot and then woman wisdom, because you actually supposed to call wisdom your sister. So in fact, the greatest character and then the worst character are both women. And then later in chapter nine, wisdom sends out more women. So it's actually not anti-woman at all. Right. But there's a harlot, you know, it could be a, a man, but you gotta remember this is all this is all a father talking to a son. So you're not gonna have a male harlot. I mean, right. culture, it's not going to happen. So that's partly the explanation for it. But there's a couple of things I wanted to know. Um, was I mean, lots, but... Proverbs 7 always terrifies me. It's like when you read it, you're like, whoa, man, like that's just like, it's just awful. And it just seems to like, especially after like all this craziness going on with like the Grammys this past weekend, you know, oh, that's that, interesting. Yeah. that weird Sam Smith guy and all that stuff. It's like, th this is just like, this is just a description of the descent of like what yep. a human, what a, typically a guy could go through and the temptations men have with lust. And then, um, and then just our culture. Right. Well, I even think like a little bit before Proverbs 625, do yeah. not desire her beauty in your heart. I mean, a lot of people think that Jesus's teaching is, is novel in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not, you know, lusting in your heart is, is, is contrary to the law of God. But I just think even that, and, and then even the way that he talks of the consequences of so you could have an affair, you could have sex with a prostitute for the loaf of bread, but if you have sex with a married woman, your life's over. Like <laughs> he's not saying that he's saying both are bad. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, his point obviously. is you got to know in real life, like the consequences are crazily different because uh, the jealousy of a married man, for example, he'll pursue you, kill yeah. you possibly. It's it's And he's so right about this. Yeah. And he's just speaking about like, these are just natural consequences. Natural, natural consequences. He's not saying it's like necessarily good or bad. He's just saying this is true. Yeah. But one thing I want to note too is like in chapter seven, at the very end, um, the adulteress here is someone who pursues us and entices us. And I think what's going on here is basically he rec Solomon recognizes that lust like you just see it with your eyes and or, or touch with your hands or whatever. And it just kind of like assaults you as it were. For for example, in verse 26, he actually calls someone who gives into a lust a victim. Yeah. And I think it's really important that those who uh, 
give in to their lust and to sensuality are, are actually victims. But of who's but I was going to ask this, maybe this is where you're going, but like victim of the adulteress or of the adulteress. Yeah. And then he makes, I think more clear at the end of chapter eight, because he says, um, uh, verse 35, 36 of chapter eight. So the contrast is that, um, lust is easy. It's immediate gratification and wisdom's hard. It takes work. But verses 35 and 36, I think, kind of summarize the argument so far. It says, whoever finds me finds life. So find, finds, important. So the way of wisdom gives life and obtains favor from Yahweh, the Lord. But then verse, look at the verse 36. But he who fails to find me, i.e. finds lust and so on, does yeah. Hamas to himself, violence. And all who hate me love death. Yeah. It's a death cult, right? And uh, you're you're a victim of your. I mean, it doesn't mean that you're not culpable, but you're also a victim, and you hurt yourself because sin of sin is self harm in scripture. I, mean, I just saw things... somebody somebody on Twitter uh, was uh, giving some quotes uh, a couple of days ago. I think it might have been yesterday uh, from Augustine, and uh, one of the, one of the things that really struck me was it was just a simple statement. Augustine says that uh, sin is your enemy. Yes. Yeah. I was just throwing that out there for you. <laughs> no, I, I, one, I, this is what we miss, I think, so often because we're so locked into voluntarism in our time where it's all about sheer will. So sin is like yep. a sheer failure of your ability to try hard enough. And while I, it, you're culpable if you're a sin, that's not my point. But my point is that sin is self harm. It's when you live a, a foolish life, a lustful life, when you, when you lust after the harlot, engage in what her wares, you're hurting yourself. Like it destroys your life, especially if you uh, uh, commit adultery with like a married you know woman or whatever. But in all of this, it's like so destructive to who you are in your life and your well-being. I mean, you can even think about this just practically. Like anyone you know who's gone through a divorce, you lose two or three years of your life and your financial independence. Yeah. Like there's there's no win to sin. It is completely self-harm and by and it leads to death. It's a death cult. Where so death worship. Yeah. Whereas Christianity or divine wisdom, which is Christ, is a life cult. It's it's a granting of real life. And that life in scripture is always double. It's obviously your 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 physical thing, resurrection. But life is that animating principle in you that God breathed into us in Genesis 2 7, which the is soul. the spirit. Soul, the soul, yeah. Yeah. Soul or spirit, whatever you want to call it. And so um I think Proverbs reteaches us that. And it's something that I feel like we've almost completely forgotten because when you try to like say Christianity is great, it's not merely because you can be forgiven. That's obviously there, but it's so that you can be saved. Yeah. And those are actually distinct or overlapping concepts in scripture. Salvation is living a moral life. It's yeah. walking in the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. Ephesians 2, so it's like, it's like, it really is eudaimonia, right? Like it's, it's a yeah. genuine human flourishing that you're, you're experiencing here. And I, I mean, I, I, I think about it, right. So you're saying, you know, here, here, here's like a, almost like a list of vices in, in, uh, in seven and it's easy. Right. And so you're not having to cultivate habits to, to, to do vice. You just, it just happens. You do it. Uh, whereas in eight, it's, it's hard work that you have to pursue that has this like positive life-changing effect in you in so many ways. And it's the habits of virtues, right? So the theological and the philosophical virtues require that sort of effort to become that sort of person, which obviously you can only do by God's grace. But um, right. it was interesting. Right. You're, you're just seeing it here on the page. 
If anyone lacks lacks wisdom, ask. And all of our problems, uh, all most of our problems in life are linked to lack of wisdom. So you have a financial problem, it's wisdom. You have a marriage problem, it's wisdom. I mean, it's all divine wisdom. It's it's no, there's no separate category to use. Now, chapter nine puts a little bit of a, a wrench in this, in that it kind of looks <laughs> at the same problem from different angles. It makes it sound like both are like equally possible to grab onto, but one makes you stupid and one makes you wise. So, for example, nine thirteen. The woman folly, so she, no, it's no longer the harlot. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. Huh. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, i.e. doesn't know a lot, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Man. But he does not know that the dead are there. And that her guests are the depths of shale. Man, it just gives you goosebumps. It gives you goosebumps because I you got to think about what death is, and not to get too philosophical, but if God created everything to be very good, Genesis one thirty one, then there can't be anything created that's evil, and therefore evil or foolishness or whatever that is is merely, in the old sense, a corruption, perversion, and what is death but an ongoing existence that lacks the substance of goodness? Death oh, is like. Wow. That's a good lack. way to make it. Well, it's just the lack of any like light of goodness. I mean, earlier in this chapter, I think lamp and light are associated with wisdom. They they enlighten your way. And yet sin is essentially walking in darkness. It's the ongoing existence where there's nothing good. There's no hope. There's no feeling. There's corruption. There is death. There's lack of anything that brings joy to you. It is, a, it's again, like we think of um, sort of punishment as being like someone hurts us and like, you know, cuts our skin or something. But in essence, God uses these natural means to make us miserable, like to let us be miserable. And it's worse than someone hurting us because we're doing it to ourselves. Yes. To the soul itself. (laughs) It's like, you're destroying yourself. God doesn't even have to like externally do it because we do it to ourselves. And it's worse for that reason. We exploit ourselves. We think we're eating stolen bread, which is sweet, but we exploit that desire for stolen bread and we eat more like you think about like looking at your phone, like just going through like Instagram or whatever. And you're like flipping through. And the more and more you do it, we want to. And it feels so sweet. Dopamine yeah. high. And the yeah. more it destroys you. Yeah. And you realize at the end of the day, nobody did it to you. You did it to yourself. And there's it's no terrifying. hope. There's no salvation. Only emptiness. And so that's kind of how I view. Like, I don't know what hell will be like and all that kind of stuff. But I think that's going to be part of the experience will just be existing without substance wow like, goodness is what i'm trying to so yeah, say can be misunderstood think but about goodness. it right like so think about it because obviously my students always get confused by this right because like they think well god's not in hell and when, I'm, when we're talking about the attributes i'm like god's on omnipresent like he's there right. and who's doing the punishing <laughs> you know it's not satan punishing people he's being punished too but the absence there is they they pick up on some of that biblical language of, of his absence. It's 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 it now is the way you're saying it's making me think through like always oh, it's the absence of the good, it's the absence of truth, it's the absence of beauty, all of which are just God. You know, they're just they're just these various ways of just de- de- describing who God is. So it's like the so they're not experiencing those sorts of things where whereas like the new heavens and the new earth has that imperfection because it's got god like you're oriented towards god yeah i think that's why the bible constantly uh shows life and death as as these two paths because a lot of people are are near shale even in proverbs we just read but they're still existing right and we know 
from Revelation that it's not death to die. You still exist in some form. You exist in shale or in, in the lake of fire or whatever. And I think that lack of substantial goodness is just like the height of sheer, like we've probably experienced this sometimes, like you probably have a moment in your life where you can remember where you just felt on the edge of complete hopelessness. Yeah, and despair. Just, just complete despair. That's it. I mean, that, and, and that you might sucks. think, yeah, you'd almost, you'd almost rather the pain of like a David Goggins, like 80 mile yeah. run. Yeah. <laughs> that feeling of like complete despair. And I think the part, the problem with this despair will be nobody did it, but myself, Man. There's no one to blame. Man, you loved it. You ate stolen bread and it was sweet over and over and over. There's no hope. There's no way out and there's no redemption. Man. That sucks. And so therefore Christianity is like, yes, of course you get forgiven, but like it's a way better quality of life. Like the, the reason that I think like the Christianity is naturally attractive, not like secret friendly attractive is because you see genuine goodness or you can see yeah. genuine goodness in it. And goodness is substance. Goodness is life. Goodness is the fullness of that very good declaration from Genesis 131. And the lack of think, it is what we described. No, I was just going to say, like, and you think of the soul, right? Like the idea of the soul is that in terms of its its power of appetite or desire is that it's always it's always uh, oriented towards a perceived good, right? So the soul can never do anything it perceives to be bad, uh, even though it can do bad things. And so um, you're... I, I, I totally lost my train of thought. What did you just say? Uh, well, I was just contrasting like the li the life and death analogy in scripture. I think that's part of what we're talking about. Like life is the fullness of that. And then Christians are, Christianity is attractive because you have. Oh, that goodness. was the attractiveness of it, right? So the, that, that attraction towards good that you see within it is something that the soul wants to naturally be attracted towards because of, because it's, it's natural desires towards goodness or perceived okay. goods. That's what it was. Even, too, it's like it's it's like it's it's calling right it's women two women calling it's folly that's calling um and then it's it's wisdom that calls at the beginning of eight and uh i mean it seems like that almost brackets that whole section in a way um yeah of these so, two different calls yeah it's almost like two different there's there's folly and and harlotry versus wisdom so it's kind of different angles but even in the folly passage there still is this idea that it's an it's a it's a way to live so look at verses um four to six Whoever is, this is the contrast. This is wisdom's um, wisdom's women. He sent she sends out. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, "Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live." And then look at this and walk in the way of insight. Now, insight is a word for knowledge. Scroll down to verse ten. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge mm. of the Holy One is insight. Wow. So, so you have this correlation between your your walk, which is based on bena insight. And knowledge of the Holy One of Israel, the Yahweh, which is insight. And that is a way to live, which is, you know, Psalm 1, the whole scripture. So it's it's harder. It's less immediate. It's not stolen bread. Um, chapter 7 and 8 make it more clear that when you contrast harlotry and wisdom, um, harlotry is easy because it comes to you. Wisdom is hard because you got to walk the path. Yeah, but yeah. the reward is like, this is really easy to illustrate. If you've ever worked hard for something like a PhD or whatever, it sucks. But when you're done, it's, it's rewarding. But if you yeah. played Xbox for five years, you'd be like, I beat Halo. Cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's a really easy way to illustrate yeah. this in life. Yeah. The things that are hard often feel terrible when you're doing them, but are the most rewarding things. And what's easy, stolen bread, 
by contrast, where you don't walk a path, you just enjoy what's immediate um, and you don't plan for the future, essentially, that's horrible. Mm. It's 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 end is Sheol. It's like like maybe another, another way to put this in the like the, to, to connect is like the manosphere stuff where you, you often see guys like you need to do hard things. You need to have good goals and you accomplish them. Well, there's something very true about that. If you don't pursue anything and don't accomplish anything, you feel miserable and empty and you have low self-worth. Um, by contrast, if you accomplish even simple things over and over and over, you have self-worth. That's how at least men are made, I think. And it doesn't mean that, you have that, to, that's the appeal just, of people like Jocko Willink or Joe yeah. Rogan and David Goggins and all that sort of stuff is that like it hit, it hits you at that sort of level where you do you you're you're getting a value out of something. Yeah, I'm just looking. I've I have Jocko's book right on my table somewhere. Oh, yeah, I whenever I go through a syllabus with my students and I get to the end of it, I I, I show the Jocko video uh, good. Um, and tell them, listen, when you're feeling bad and you don't want to write this paper, you don't want to study for this exam, good. just think of Jocko. Good. Uh, maybe <laughs> that is that same kind of wisdom. That's the same kind of wisdom as the idea of like turning to the ant, right? Is like yes. looking, uh, these are like these are like natural theology type things where it's like you're looking at the way just God has made reality, and the the human who's made in His image can can know it even in a fallen state and say these good things that we can learn from. Even well, create like creatures are doing right. First Kings three and four identifies explicitly three things that Solomon got. So discerning good from evil, but second is actually knowing animals and plants, which are the mm. the two prior days of the created order. So knowing nature essentially, and then knowing the arts, which would be poetry in this case. And and um, so that's weird for us because wisdom for us is not always knowing the arts or knowing nature, though it could we think of it a bit differently. But that at least the Bible in those chapters thinks things of it that way. So in, in chapter six verse six, go to the ant, you sluggard. That's perfectly matched to how Solomon's described. He's one who knows the animal world very well. And then the tree, the tree world as well. He talks about bread and food and harvest, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a robber. Yeah. and want like an armed man. A lot of this is just natural observations. It's why people can like the manosphere stuff and genuinely hear adumbrations of real wisdom even though they don't have the full gift of it yet. Yeah. They can see some glimpse of it. I think um, in, uh, so Augustine, either in his retractions um, or in the soliloquy, either or, whatever it is, um, he says that in the arts, people by the light of natural reason can see glimpses of that light, hmm. but it's insufficient for the full thing. Right. But nonetheless, it's still there by glimpse. So, you know, what Plato would call reminiscence, Augustine calls divine illumination. And that would be the contrast. And I think that's why you can see um, real wisdom in the world, but it's insufficient. And that's why I think biblical wisdom is ask and you shall receive. So James 1 or 1 Kings 3. And that gives you a wisdom that is then tied to the Holy One of Israel and to a particular way of life that promises regular success because the path you walk is revealed not discovered if that makes sense yeah no absolutely does right that's that's the whole call right you know does not wisdom call well i think we can stop here and we can jump into what right. abraham kuyper says is the no no sorry rc sproul calls uh the one of the two most brilliant theologians in the church
Thomas yeah. Aquinas, and we'll see that he calls, doesn't he call theology wisdom? Divine wisdom? Yeah, oh, sapient, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we'll the look whole into thing, that. Sac 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 sacra doctrine, doctrina, right at the very beginning of the Summa. So, yeah, this will be fun. We'll, we'll read and that has great, been fun. great preacher of the word and Bible-centered man, Thomas Aquinas, next, I think next week. And become, and become better Calvinists. We'll become better Calvinists, exactly.